about six years ago, I, uh, I went to lunch with a group of high school students from the Marietta campus. I was the high school pastor and director of student ministries there at our, at our Marietta campus of Mount Perry North. And I went to lunch with a couple, of, a couple of guys there that were part of our student ministry. One of those guys was Pastor Trevor. We went to eat lunch. It was Mexican, fittingly. And um, we, we went to lunch, and we had a great time. And as we were leaving, I was headed back to the church to go back to work. And I'm ashamed to admit it, but I was driving a wee bit faster than the 35-mile-an-hour speed limit between the restaurant and the church. And uh, an officer pulled me over and gave me a speeding ticket for driving beyond the speed limit. He gave me a court date, and he said, you know, you can just pay this fine prior to your court date. That's all you have to do, or you can show up to court if you'd like to do that. Well, I was hoping that maybe if I showed up to court, not that they would throw it out because I was guilty, but maybe they would do something that allowed it not to go on my insurance, not to go on my driving record. And so I was planning to go to court. But as the court date got closer, I realized I was going to be out of town at a church conference. And so I called the clerk of courts and said, hey, I'm going to be out of town on business. Is there any way I can move the court date? I need to come to court that day to stand before the judge. And so she said, I can move it one time. And so she moved it like a few weeks later in the month. And so as the second court date got closer, I realized again that I was not going to be able to make court. It was like at 1 o'clock that day, and I had something in the afternoon. There was no way I could change it, and so I wasn't going to be able to do it. So I decided, okay, I'll just go and pay the ticket, and it'll have to go on my insurance, and, you know, it is what it is. So that morning, the day of the court, I went to the courthouse, and I paid the fine. They gave me a receipt. I stapled that to the citation, took it home, filed it away, no problems, everything was fine. About nine months later, I was driving in downtown Canton with my nine-month pregnant wife, my four-year-old son, Cooper, and my two-year-old son, Branson. And we were driving, and we were on our way to dinner, but I realized that the place we were talking about going to eat did not take debit cards, and I would have to have cash. So while we're driving in downtown Canton, there's a big bank building there, and Regions Bank was there, and so there's an ATM on the side of that building, and I decided, oh, you know what? I need to stop and get some cash. And so I did the unthinkable. I went from the right lane across the left lane into the Regions Bank without using my turn signal. I didn't do it intentionally. I wasn't trying to, to bring harm to any citizen of Canton. I just realized I'm almost about to pass the entrance, and the way they have the city of Canton set up, you have to go nine miles around to get back to the entrance of the Regions Bank. So I didn't want to do that, so I just quickly got over. There were no other cars anywhere in the downtown area of Canton. It was just me and my family and that ATM machine. And I pulled into that region's bank. Unbeknownst to me, there was a police officer sitting in the shadows somewhere who saw me make that move. So he pulls into the parking lot of region's bank and he just sits there. And I I thought, wow, that's interesting. He must need the ATM after me. So I go to the ATM, I get my cash, I get back in my car, I pull out onto the road, he pulls out behind me, turns his lights on, and pulls me over, fittingly, on the other side of Regions Bank in the other side of the parking lot. I thought, wow, we've been here before. So he comes up to the car, nice guy, says, hey, you know, I pulled you over, you didn't use your turn signal, you, you crossed several lanes and came into the Regions Bank there, and so I need your driver's license and registration which I provided with a wonderful attitude, I think, and handed it to him. He goes back to his patrol car, and I'm sitting there, and we're having a conversation about eating dinner. 
A couple minutes later, the officer comes back up to my window and says, Mr. Isaacs, can I have you step out of the car for just a minute? I said, absolutely. I get out of the car. I step back to the rear of the car, thinking that somehow I have a taillight out or, as is not normally the case with me, that my tag is expired. And so I'm standing at the rear of the car, and I am no more past the back bumper of the car when he grabs me like an episode of Cops. My hands are behind my back, and I'm in cuffs. I'm thinking, I'm being punked. There is a camera somewhere. Somebody's shooting a video that's going to, they're paying me back for me, you know, whatever. So he says, once I have the cuffs on, he says, Mr. Isaacs, do you know that you're driving on a suspended license? I said, no, sir, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. You're driving on a suspended license, and you have been every time you've gotten behind the wheel for the last nine months. I said, no, sir, you're mistaken. He said, no, your driver's license was suspended nine months ago for failure to appear in Cobb County Court for a speeding ticket. I said, well, I did get a ticket, but I also paid that ticket, and I have a receipt at my house. If you will drive me there, follow me there, whatever we've got to do. Let's get to my house. I've got a receipt. I can prove to you that I paid that ticket. I did not fail to appear. I submitted my payment as my appearance there. He said, it's too late for that. Your driver's license is suspended. You are being arrested. (laughs) I didn't say, I'm a pastor of a church. I don't do things like this. I just said, okay, He takes me to the car, puts me in the back of that car. And if you've ever been in that experience, it is humbling. It's also painful. With cuffs behind your back, you can't get into the back of a patrol car without separating one or both shoulders. And I mean, I'm pretty limber, but it hurt. And I'm sitting in the back of the car and I can see the camera and hear the audio of the officer talking to my nine-month pregnant wife and he doesn't give her the information about why I'm in the back of the car. She has no idea what I've done. I can imagine. I mean, we've been pregnant a few times and I know how the pregnant brain works a little bit. I can only imagine the things that she's envisioning that her husband has done that she doesn't know about that have now landed me in the back of this patrol car. And the officer says, you know, you can take the car home. In about two hours or so, he'll be able to call you. The officer gets in the car, and he takes me to the police station there in downtown Canton. He puts me into a cell by myself in a chair, This is the picture of me in the cell. Now, you might ask, how did you take a picture in your cell? He did not confiscate my phone. And I'm sitting in the cell, and at this point, I still have a pretty good attitude about this. I'm like, this is crazy. I'm going to take a picture of this so that six years from now, I can preach about it and prove to these people that I was really in that cell. The man on the right is the one filling out all the paperwork The man in the middle, I think, was playing solitaire, and I don't know what the lady there was doing, but I'm sitting in the cell, I mean, honestly laughing about, like, how in the world did I get here? Like, I'm a rule keeper by nature, pretty much. I don't know how I got here. And he sees me me take the picture with my phone, and he goes, you still have your phone? I was like, no. Is that not allowed in here? He's like, no, I need to have it. So he gets my phone. 
After he fills out all the paperwork, he takes me to the Cherokee County Detention Center. I walk in as if I'd shot somebody. (laughs) They take the shirt that I'm wearing, leave me in an undershirt. They take my belt. My pants were a little large at that point. I was a little little lighter than I am right this moment. They sagging the rest of the time that I was there. Took my shoes away from me. And they put me into a holding cell with 10 of the most amazing individuals you've ever met in your entire life. (laughs) All the stories that I could tell you if time were to allow. And it wasn't two hours. I was in that cell for about five hours listening to the stories of these men. They just kept asking me why I was there. I called it a paperwork discrepancy. Five hours later, they came and opened the door to my cell, which even saying that phrase seems surreal to me today. And they took me over and they fingerprinted me. And they took a mugshot of me. And they told me what the fine would be to get me out of that place. And then they said, you can go and make a collect phone call. So I'm thinking, my wife is freaking out right now. So I go to the phone that's on the wall an attempt to make a collect call to her cell phone because I don't have a home number and you can't make a collect call to a cell phone. It's two o'clock in the morning. And I was like, who in the world am I going to call at two o'clock in the morning? I don't know anybody else's phone number. I'm going to be in here the rest of my life. (laughs) So above the phone, there is a scrolling message board that has the name of all the bail bondsmen in Cherokee County. And so it just happened to roll to one, and I thought, well, that's as good as any. I'll just call that guy. So I called that number, and I tried to explain the situation. How you doing? I'm in here. It's totally a mistake. This will all be cleared up in the morning, which I'm sure they've heard that before. I said, my wife is at my house. She has a cell phone that I can't call collect. Can I get you to call her and keep me on the line so that I can then talk to her? And they do that. And we start talking, and Corey and this person on the other end say, okay, we'll take care of it. We'll be there in just a little bit to get you out. Your wife will just have to come here and sign some papers. What I do not realize that happened in the interim is that they discovered that my wife is a stay-at-home mom, which in their books means unemployed. So she can't sign for me to get out of jail. I'm going to be in here forever. (laughs) And so Corey's thinking, who in the world can I call now at nearly 3 a.m.? And explain that my husband, pastor, is in jail and ask them to co-sign for bail to get him out. We don't have that good of friends. And so she picks up the phone and she calls a co-worker at the church. The wife answers and she says, I'm so sorry, but I need to talk to your husband. Gets him on the phone. They work together. He agrees to come at 3 a.m. and sign for me to get out of jail. For about a month, I had to have his permission to leave the state. They show up at the jail. I get out of jail and get home by about 4.30 in the morning. Still haven't eaten dinner, mind you. And I don't skip meals. I was in a great mood at this point. I just kept getting madder and madder and madder. 4.30, I get home. I lay down. I was up by 7 got all the paperwork together, took it to the DMV. They reinstated my license immediately. I went to my court date a few weeks later, and they threw the entire thing out. Why do I tell you this? Because I'm a criminal. And in the last six years, I've been living a double life. And I feel today the need to come clean. No, I, 
my wife, when she picked me up from jail, was laughing her head off when she found out what was going on. I still haven't laughed about it. I was still so angry and so mad and could not figure out how is there any good in this? How is there any, why are you laughing at me, woman? It's not funny because I was lacking the ability to see the situation for what it was. Now, there's a guy that we talked about in scripture last week. His name is Paul. He was Saul and he became Paul and he has this incredible story and he's this incredible figure in all of Christendom and he helped to write two-thirds of the New Testament. And, and a lot of the writing deals with him going into prison, going into jail in some form or fashion, or he writes letters while in jail to people that he's interacted with when he was a free man. And today I want us just to jump into a little bit of his story because what happens in the book of Acts chapter 16, there's this incredible story about him where he shows up in the city of Philippi with his traveling companions. And he shows up there and he meets this woman named Lydia who sells clothes and fine purple linens and they interact with one another. She believes on the teachings of Jesus Christ and they go, she invites them to come and stay at her house and so they do. But as they're walking, there's this little girl who follows them. And she starts following after them, and she starts yelling things like, these men are servants of the Most High God. These men are servants of the Most High God. And the Bible says that this continued for several days. And here's what I love about just the Bible being real. Scripture actually records it this way. Paul was annoyed at her, and so he turns around and casts the spirit out of her because she was a fortune teller. And this little girl was making money for her owners, probably her parents or aunts and uncles, by telling fortunes of other people and they would pay her and she would give that money then to these adults that were using her as a money-making scheme. And so when Paul cast the spirit out of her, her owners, probably her mom and dad or her aunts and uncles, they are mad because they've lost the ability to make money from this girl. And so they go and tell the, the rulers of that town and they say, hey, these guys are doing something that's illegal and they're spreading things that Roman citizens aren't supposed to believe. And so Paul and Silas are arrested and they go to jail. That's a modern day equivalent to not, not using a turn signal. And so they go to jail and it says that about midnight they're sitting there singing and they're worshiping, kind of like we've done here, but they're doing it while they're sitting in jail, chained together and chained to some guards. And an earthquake comes and shakes the jail, and their shackles fall off. Now, there's an unbelievable sermon right there that I don't have time for today, but it's amazing. Their shackles fall off while they're worshiping in prison. You can just run with that if you want to. And so the jailer wakes up, and he thinks, man, surely they've run away. And he gets scared, and Paul and Silas call out to him and say, no, 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 we're still here. At which point he realizes there's something different about these guys than the other guys that he's seen in jail. And so he turns to them and says, how can I be saved? And they take him back to his home and his entire home is saved. They're baptized in the middle of the night. And the next morning, those men are going to be released. But Paul and Silas say, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. You beat us in public. You condemned us. You accused us of a bunch of stuff. You can't just get rid of us. We need to have the opportunity to defend ourselves. And they begin to do that there in the city of Philippi. Years later, Paul shows up in the city of Rome. This is the Rome that you know about. It's an incredible epicenter of that day, and he is arrested, and he's under house arrest for several years. A lot of this is cataloged in Acts 28, 29, and 30. 
And so he's in jail. He's really under house arrest. And so the, the guards are really kind of taking care of him, making sure that he doesn't get away. But he's allowed to have visitors to come and go while he's under house arrest. And it's during that time that many scholars believe that he writes a letter to his friends and to the church that was established in the city of Philippi back there in Acts chapter 16. He's had this friend come from the city of Philippi. He's the pastor there. Uh, His name is Epaphroditus, and he comes and brings a financial blessing to Paul for him to use to continue his ministry, and he can't work while he's under house arrest, and so it helps to sustain him while he's under house arrest. Epaphroditus gets sick. He almost dies, and it's recorded in Philippians 2, and then when he gets better, Paul sends with him this letter that he's written to the city of Philippi, the church there, these Philippians about the things that he wants them to know. And much of it is thanking them for their generosity towards him and encouraging them in the way that they should live. And that's what we have in the book of Philippians. And over the next few weeks, we're going to just look at a few you know, chunks of this story. It's four chapters long only. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, there's an incredible reading plan where you can read all four chapters over the course of a couple of days. It's really, really good. I've done that over the last several weeks in preparation for this series. But today, I just want us to look at a couple of small pieces right in chapter one before we close. Beginning in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1, this is what Paul writes. Keep in mind he's in jail. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I told you, The night I went to jail and I got out, Corey thought it was the funniest thing in the world. I did not. I could not see any good that could come from those hours that I spent there. I was frustrated that the the system had let me down. Somehow there had been some kind of glitch in the system and I had been the benefactor of this bad luck because I lacked the perspective. But what Paul's saying right here is he said, listen, I'm imprisoned. I'm definitely under house arrest. I'm not a free man. I can't come and go as I want to. But listen, my imprisonment is for Christ. He has the ability to look beyond his present circumstances and the place that he finds himself and see that there is some greater good that's coming from that. And he says, not only that, but there's some confidence that's growing among the brothers because of the way they see me carrying myself in this situation. He says, the gospel's advancing. I mean, literally, it's all good. It's okay. Things are happening because of what's happening to me. And so you can become more and more confident in sharing about Jesus Because as you watch me do that with these imperial guards and others that are coming into my path, even while I'm imprisoned, I want you to know that the gospel is still advancing. He has this incredible perspective. He goes on to write in verse 21, 23, and 24. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account." This phrase, to live as Christ, is the, is the title of the series of sermons that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. But here's what he's saying. He said, I'm living in the tension that many believers are going to be living in when they realize that eternity with God is what happens after this life. Because if eternity with God is what's next, that's where I want to be. He's saying, listen, to die is to gain because dying is not the end of the thing. It's the beginning of the thing. And so to die is to gain. So I'm actually wanting to to be there. But he says, even beyond that, I'm I'm living in this tension because I see that my present circumstances is actually beneficial to other people. And so maybe to live and to continue living is about more 
than me. Maybe there's something that God wants to do in and through me in my present circumstances that is even better in this present moment than going and being with him. It's this idea here. No matter what you believe about the afterlife, no matter what you believe about God and heaven and hell, no matter what you believe about that, it's this question here. Is there anything that God would want me to do today? Why am I still alive? What is it that God may want from me today for his purposes? What is it that God may be trying to accomplish in and through me? If I have that filter, if I have that lens by which to view my life, it changes the way that I view everything that I experience and encounter because then it becomes a part of a much larger story that's not confined to the way that I feel in a specific moment. The book of James chapter 1 references this early, early on. And this, this greeting happens in verse 1. And then we get to verse 2. And this is a very popular passage of Scripture, so many of you may know this. This is what James writes. My brothers and sisters, you will face all kinds of trouble. And when you do, think of it as pure joy. Your faith will be put to the test. You know that when that happens, it will produce in you the strength to continue. The strength to keep going must be allowed to finish its work. Then you will be all that you should be. You will have everything that you need. Verse 2 said, my brothers and sisters, you will face all kinds of trouble. And when you do, think of it as pure joy. Now, this word joy is utilized in the book of Philippians a lot. Paul references really this idea of joy or rejoicing or being joyful several times. The word joy, just in this short four-chapter book, the word joy is used four times. The word rejoice is used eight times. The, 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 the phrase or the word be glad or be made glad is used another three or four times. And so in this short passage, while he's imprisoned, while circumstances are not great, he's actually referencing that there's something that you can experience beyond the emotions that may accompany your present circumstances, and it is the idea of joy. Here's a question for you. Are you joyful? However you would define that word, am I joyful? Are you joyful? Am I joyful? You know, I think my first exposure to the word joy was in a Christmas song, Joy to the World. And I wasn't as concerned with the joy part of that as the idea that heaven and earth was singing because Jesus was coming. And at that age, it was also that I think Jesus was bringing presents with him on a sleigh or something. I, I couldn't really ever figure that part of the connection out. And then we celebrated Easter and he is risen with an Easter bunny or something. I don't know. There was something there that I was trying to pull together, but I didn't really know what joy meant. I don't know that I still have a great handle on what joy means, but I ran across two quotes that relate to this concept that I thought were really interesting. Agatha Christie says this, I like living. I have sometimes been wildly, despairingly, acutely miserable, racked with sorrow, but through it all, I still know quite certainly that just to be alive is a grand thing. I ran across this website by a lady named Danielle Laporte. You may know her. I don't really know anything about her. She seems to be an author and writer, and she blogs a little bit. And this is from a post that I found when I was doing some research for this message. She says, happiness is always passing through. It can claim your full attention for the 10 seconds it takes to swallow a sip of incredible coffee. Or it can stream through you, your being for, for weeks on end. But happiness can't hold the same space as sadness or anger or the range of so-called negative emotions for very long. That is why it's transitory. Joy is the fiber of your soul. 
It's the stuff of your essence. And since you, your soul, can never be annihilated, your access to joy never vanishes. Because joy is so foundational to your true being, every other state or emotion can rest on top of joy. It can accommodate everything. I love her ability to kind of separate for us the idea of happiness or joy because what she's saying is happiness can exist in a moment because of the emotions that you're experiencing or happiness can extend for days at a time because of the emotions that you're experiencing in those days. But once other emotions come in, they push the emotion of happiness aside. So you can be happy as long as you're not sad. You can't be happy and sad truly at a core level. You can be happy about something and sad about something, but not down to the core of who you are. When something truly sad happens in your life, it pushes aside or seems to push aside all happiness that you may experience in any other facet of your life. Anger, bitterness, hatred, all of these things cannot coexist with happiness because happiness is an emotion that's circumstantial based on the things that I'm experiencing. And it brings in happiness and pushes aside everything else until something else happens that's stronger and pushes aside the happiness that I feel. But she says, no, 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 joy is something different. It's the fiber of the soul. There is this idea that God as he was knitting you together in your mother's womb, knit in you this strand, this string of joy. It's a part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the idea that deep inside of the core of who you are, there can be joy that is not circumstantial, that is not based on the things that you experience. It goes all beyond every emotion that you can possibly experience in life so that you can have joy and still experience sorrow. That you can be joyful even in the midst of pain. I think it's why James says that even in the tests and trials that we face, you can consider that pure joy. That there is the ability to coexist inside of you the fiber, the nature of joyful living, even in the midst of adversity. So Paul can write a book while in jail, literally pointing towards the end of his life, though he can't know that before he is to testify about who he is and who God is and what God is calling him and others to be. And he can write about being joyful. And he can command others to rejoice even in his circumstances or their own. He can call them to be glad because joy is foundational. It is a perspective kind of detangler You're able to take all the things that you're experiencing and push them aside down to the very basic core level and allow yourself to, even in the midst of that, be joyful. It's saying to God, God, I don't like my present circumstance, but even in the midst of it, I know who you are. And I know that you promised goodness to me It doesn't make you a genie in a bottle promising all of the wishes and granting everything that I would desire, but I know that ultimately you are working together all things for my good, even bad things, even good things, even things that I can't understand. And in that, I rest in the joy of who you are. And so here's three questions that as I was kind of working through this, I just felt like these are reframing questions. They're questions that allow me, no matter what I'm experiencing, to to really kind of 
change my perspective, to refocus on the things of God, the larger story, the larger picture. It's not putting my head in the sand and saying the things that I'm experiencing that I don't like, I'm not not even going to deal with those things. It allows me to experience emotion. It allows me to experience everything that I'm feeling and still remain joyful. Here are the three questions. In the midst of the bad that I'm experiencing, what good has or can come from it? That's a hard question. It's a really difficult question because it it requires you to have the emotional stability to pull aside all of the emotional trauma that you may have experienced and be just enough removed from it to kind of look at it from the outside. To kind of allow you to be there and almost have one of those like out-of-body experiences and see yourself in the midst of your circumstances and go, wow, yes, that moment or those series of moments are really, really, really bad. But when I look at it in the larger scheme of the time that's passed or the relationships that are impacted, I actually see that there has been some good to come from this. Or I can see how God may use this to bring about good at a later date. So the question is, even in the midst of the bad that I'm experiencing, what good has or can come from this? Here's a second one that is a much larger issue unrelated to anything that I'm facing. What things do I still have that I can be thankful for? I lost my job. What can I still be thankful for? My finances are in shambles. What can I still be thankful for? I've got all kinds of relational instability. What things can I be thankful for? It is reframing the circumstances of my life, to focus on something far beyond that that really drives to the core of who I am that says I am going to attempt to be joyful even in the midst of pain or sorrow or uncertainty or fears or doubts or anxiety. I choose to find something to be thankful for in the midst of a situation that may not call for thanksgiving. Third question is this. What might God be teaching me through this? This one's hard. And in talking with some folks just in recent days, I don't know that you always have a great answer in the midst of something. I'm not sure. Actually, I'm probably sure it's rare that while you're right in the midst of it, I mean, while the cop has got you in the cuffs, I don't know that you're going, wow, I see what God's doing here. I really see this. I don't know while you're sitting there hearing that you've lost your job. I don't know while you're opening the letter from the bank that they're potentially going to repossess your house. I don't know while you're hearing the conversation from your spouse that they are leaving. I don't know while you're listening to your kids describe some terrible decision that they've made and the impact it's going to have on them and you and the future. And the fa- I don't know that in that moment you can always fully grasp what God may be teaching you, or teaching me. But here's what I know. God works together all things for the good of those who are seeking after him. And so I believe with all of my heart, and when I look back, I can see in almost every circumstance that God is working together the things that I could see no value in to add value to me, to my life, to the lives of others that I'm connected with. And so those three questions again. In the the midst of the bad that I'm experiencing, what good has or can come from this? What things do I still have that I can be thankful for? And what might God be teaching me through this? Now, I'm not saying that you need to keep this checklist on a post-it note in your car so that every time you get pulled over, you can ask yourself these questions. 
But I am saying that maybe you put it somewhere. You put it in your phone in the little notes app. You email it to yourself so you can always search it and pull it up. You write it down and put it in your Bible. You put it in your wallet. You put it in your purse. And maybe every circumstance doesn't require all three of these questions, but maybe just one allows us to change our perspective and look and see what God might be doing in the midst of something that we can see no good in. Paul's in jail. Epaphroditus is about to die. The church in Philippi is way over there and can't do anything to help him. Many of the people that Paul has tried to convert disagree with him. He's headed to stand before the rulers of that day in Rome, and it could cost him his life. He says, listen, be glad. Find joy. Live for God. Understand that even I understand that what I'm experiencing is is bringing about greater good than I could have ever imagined. He says, listen, my imprisonment is for Christ. Even though I actually, I'm okay with dying because it gets me to an eternity with God, I understand that God is keeping me here for a greater purpose. Why might God be keeping you here? Why might God be keeping me here? What is it that God wants to do in and through you or in and through me that he looks down and he legitimately, I believe this about the nature of God, he looks at you and says, I need something done and you're the exact person I need to do it. And your life may not have turned out like you thought. Maybe the present circumstances aren't what you would wish or hope yourself. But I have a plan. And I need you to just rest in that plan and to be comfortable just living as a part of this story that I'm writing in the world. And so I'll ask the question again. Are you joyful? Down to the core of who you are, the very fiber of your soul, as she described it, am I joyful? I think these reframing questions can bring joy in my life. Because even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of the good and the bad, I'm able to look and focus my attention on God and what he may be trying to accomplish even when I can't see it. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes as we close today. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what's going on. And I don't want this to seem like a downer sermon or message here today because that's not the intent. It's just to be an encouragement that maybe God's doing something you haven't seen yet. So my prayer as we close today is that God would just give you joy. He would help you to reframe the circumstances of your life to be about much more than the emotions of happiness or sadness that you may be feeling in this moment that you would allow yourself down to the core of who you are, the very fiber of your soul, the fiber of your being, to be connected to his purposes in life. God, I pray today for every person sitting here, every person who may watch or listen to this back at a later date. God, right now in this moment, let your Holy Spirit do a work among us. God, help us to see that you are doing something. That this story is about a lot more than the details of my life, but they include the details of my life. So God, today I pray that you would help me to be joyful. Not to be controlled by the emotions, both good and bad, that I experience. And be in good moods when I'm happy and be in bad moods when I'm sad. But God, to carry an ever-present sense of joy in every interaction I have with other people. 
to allow that to just permeate who I am and every circumstance, every experience, that people would describe me as a joyful person. God, help me to look to you to experience the good that you may be bringing in the bad. God, to find things to be thankful for in the midst of situations where I may be a little ungrateful. And God, to learn lessons when I'm not sure I can be taught anything here. Help us to grow in you as we trust you more and to respond to you, God, as you teach us in the midst of our life. In Jesus' name we pray.